Hello, bonjour, and tantse. I'm Paula Simons, and this is Alberta Unbound. When a new seat came open on the Supreme Court of Canada a few months ago, I knew exactly who should fill it. Madam Justice Mary Morrow, the fluently bilingual Chief Justice of Alberta's Court of King's Bench. And pretty much every person from Edmonton's legal community that I talked to agreed. That's a measure of the respect that Justice Moreau had earned after 29 years on the bench and six as Chief Justice. Of course, competition to be named as the Supreme Court is stiff indeed, so there were no guarantees. But on November 6th, Mary Moreau was indeed sworn in as the newest member of Canada's Supreme Court. And I am delighted to welcome her to Alberta Unbound. Bienvenue, Madame de Justice. Merci beaucoup. Un plaisir d'être avec vous. Before you are officially appointed to the Supreme Court, um, all justices have to answer questions from a panel of MPs and senators. And I was one of the senators who had the privilege of asking you a question. But this isn't the United States, and your questioning was nothing like a heated American confirmation hearing. In fact, we weren't allowed to ask you anything about any of your previous decisions or anything that might come before the Supreme Court. And so we will play by the same rules here today. So my first question is something quite different. I want to talk to you about your your childhood. You grew up in a bilingual, bicultural family. Tell me a little bit about your parents and about the home you grew up in. The story goes back to actually my granddad on my father's side, who was born and raised in Quebec, was a doctor and was concerned that he might have contracted tuberculosis. And he thought that the fresh air of the plains would be very helpful to his health situation. And so off he went to Saskatchewan. He met my grandmother, who was a teacher in Saskatchewan, and uh, they laid their roots in the family roots in a very small community called Hoey, which had an enclave of French Canadians, uh, tight-knit community. My father then went to the Jesuit College in Edmonton, uh, left home at age 12, actually, to board at the Jesuit uh, College and would go home and farm with uh, my grandfather, who was also uh, a gentleman farmer, in addition to being a GP in Saskatchewan. And uh, eventually, my father uh, went into medicine, like his own father, uh, but specialized in orthopedics and did his postgrad training in Montreal in French in, uh, in orthopedics. My mom uh, was from uh, southern Alberta and the daughter of an RCMP officer. And I say that because they had the um, experience of living in a home in various centers in southern Alberta uh, that also supplied a jail. And so um, mom was fairly close to the justice system, literally, in her growing <laughs> up years. Uh, she was unilingual uh, English, uh, and uh, my father uh, certainly was prepared to uh, help fund French lessons for her. As the number of children increased in the family, so was my mother's need to get out uh, regularly. Uh, and so she decided that French lessons would be a great idea. One week night a week, the theory is they drank a lot of coffee, but didn't do a lot of speaking in French because the French really did not improve over the years. We suspected that she understood a lot. When you say the children increased, there were eight of you. That's right. Now, how do you think that being one of eight shaped your view of your place in the world? Where, like, where were you in the rank order 
I was uh, sixth in the ranking, um, and I do think that being in a large family does shape you um, because uh, everything is shared. And uh, there's a certain amount of rigor attached to the home routines. In other words, if you're not home by six, you don't have supper. So the cardinal rule was that everybody gathered around the table, or if you didn't, you better have a good reason not to. And so um, giving uh, a space to others, uh, exercising some patience when it's not your turn for any particular activity, I think did shape me and also my professional life to some extent. Now, your father, I mean, he wasn't just a francophone and he wasn't just an orthopedic surgeon. Not that that's a just it's a pretty good thing to be an orthopedic surgeon. He was also an impassioned champion of the French language and of French Canadian culture in Alberta. Now, why do you think he felt personally so passionate about that subject? It's a very hard thing to analyze, but I do think that being raised by a French Canadian father, the language, of course, is the face of culture. It is the way of expressing one's culture, and he had the language. And therefore, he had the culture that was passed down to him uh, and that he passed on to us as children. I mentioned at the uh, parliamentary hearings, um, I believe the songs, the voyageur songs that he would uh, teach us all the verses to, and they're endless, but they can really pass the time when you're in a long ride in the car, particularly if it's a truck with 10 people in it. And uh, <laughs> we very much participated in all of the cultural uh, events that were offered uh, in our community in Edmonton. And I'm talking about the Cabana Sucre, uh, the plays that uh, French theater um, put on, um, any number of things, choral uh, groups. Learning those French songs for me was just part of growing up. And he attached a real value to identifying with a culture, as do I. Now, when you started school, there were no French language public schools in Alberta, only French immersion schools. In your sort of essay uh, applying to be uh, a member of the Supreme Court, you mentioned the difference was that you only got to go to school 50% of the time in French in an immersion school rather than if you'd been in a French language school. So what, what difference do you think it would have made to you if you had been able to go to a French language school and not just an immersion program? Well, I mean, I do think um, answering you maybe a little indirectly that that was part of uh, the experience, a lived experience um, that generated my interest in language rights cases and more particularly in the right to a francophone school under Section 23 of the Charter that would be managed and controlled by members of the Francophone community. And so I guess that was a bit of a lived experience on the perhaps a more negative side is that I did not have the advantage of that. And in fact, my elementary school uh, schooling, there was the immersion section and the English section in the same school. And so um, I think it's very difficult to implant culture, the school being the center of culture in my experience. Um, children learning about their culture. Um, it, not having that experience, I think, was uh, difficult. Um, certainly, we made up for it in other ways in the community. But as you may know, my father was very involved in attempting to get that 50% uh, French quota increased. And uh, I think and was recognized for his efforts in that regard by the naming of a Francophone school in Edmonton while he was alive. 
which was so lovely because he got to go to the ceremony. Yes. I mean, that, that, you know, I've said to my family, if, you know, if when I'm gone, uh, that's what I would like a school named after me, but you're right. Even better, even better to have one while you can go and, and, and be there and meet the kids. So, so did you grow up thinking of yourself as a Franco Albertin, as a French Canadian, because you, you, you know, you also had your mom's side of the family. So how did you balance those two sets of identities? Well, my mother gave us a lot of space, both to learn uh, French and participate in the French community because she understood it. She understood that that was um, a real motivation in my father's life and uh, that it really was something uh, that he had a passion for and she respected that. And so that he was instilling it in the children was something that she very much supported even though she herself had some limitations linguistically. But I certainly considered myself first and foremost a Franco-Albertan and still do. So during your meeting with that panel of MPs and senators, I noted that you made a specific point of beginning your remarks en français. And I had the feeling that some of the Francophone MPs and senators were testing you a bit to see if you were really bilingual. (laughs) So, so, So did you feel as though you needed to prove your Francophone bona fides to them? No, I, I actually didn't get the same vibe you might have had. Uh, I thought it was great to be answering questions uh, in um, the language that they chose, uh, which is also my language. And uh, no, I, I, I think that uh, I'm communicating so much in French that those kinds of things don't occur to me. Now, you came from a family of doctors. What made you, I mean, apart from the fact that you're, that you're, your non-Francophone grandfather was an RCMP officer. What do you think made you interested in studying the law instead of medicine? Well, you know, um, I might have mentioned that I took sciences in my uh, pre-law program at Campus Saint-Jean, as well as arts, because I wasn't sure uh, whether I might be interested in going into medicine. I really like sciences. Um, I enjoyed biology and chemistry and took all my prereqs um, during uh, those years at Campus Saint-Jean. But I think ultimately, perhaps that journalism job that I had in the summer at Radio-Canada opened my eyes up to the larger world. And I felt that having a law degree might open more doors for me professionally. Um, And ultimately, I think that's how I treated my law degree going in to law school was this will be a great undergrad degree for me. And then (laughs) I'll decide what I really want to do. So once you graduated, you began your career as a criminal defense lawyer, which, you know, I don't want to say back then, that makes us seem so old, but <laughs> but then was a so, somewhat rarer career choice for a young woman. What drew you to criminal defense work in particular? I had been uh, working with student legal services during law school. So you get a taste of criminal work um, with summary conviction matters. And uh, so I was appearing in court and very much enjoying it. And the mentor for my SLS program happened to be my future husband. So that probably helped as well. Uh, (laughs) Watching Peter, you know, grow in the profession. He was about five years at the bar when we met. And I really thought that uh, it was challenging. I loved the courtroom. It is a way of getting into the courtroom the most frequently, because uh, matters while while they are resolved on many occasions, it still requires a court appearance of some sort. And it might be a speaking to sentence, or it may be a full trial. 
It may be pretrial motions, but there's a lot of variety, and that's what I enjoyed. Now, one of your most influential cases as a criminal defense lawyer involved a francophone client who'd been arrested on drug charges. And you argued successfully that he had the right to a trial in French, but that it, that was a long process. So tell me a little bit about how that case and that client came to you. He walked into my office, literally, probably heard that uh, I was a French-speaking lawyer, um, but I was a pretty, pretty junior one at the time. And my first reaction when he said that his buddy in Ontario was charged with the same type of offense and he was entitled to a jury of his peers being francophone jury, uh, why would that not happen in a bilingual country? That was his question to me. And I said, well, at this point, we don't have the criminal code provisions enacted in Alberta or proclaimed in Alberta that permit this trial to proceed in French. But, you know, give me a couple of weeks, I'll have a look and see whether there's any other basis upon which we might be able to argue for the trial in French. And that's where the voyage began and went through four court levels. And I might add three pregnancies to <laughs> get to the resolution of the issue of a trial in French with a jury in Alberta. Now, you found a rather ingenious constitutional argument to make that case for your client to receive his trial in French by going back, back, back in time. So can you can explain uh, to us what that argument was and, and how you came upon it? Well, I have to uh, say I can't take credit for it uh, because it arose out of a decision called Mercure in Saskatchewan. That involved a traffic ticket, not a criminal code offense or a uh, a federal drug charge, as was the case with uh, Monsieur Paquette. But uh, it certainly revealed that at the time that Alberta and Saskatchewan became provinces, there was a law on the books that provided for bilingual proceedings in the courts and in the debates of the legislature. And it turned out that that particular provision was never properly revoked. So I argued that if it was to be revoked, it would have to be done in the context of a federal amendment and not by a, a province having simply constituted itself in 1905. Yeah. So it was a long, um, a, a, a laborious process, but uh, I can't take credit for the start of it. In all of the, the reading I've done about this, I, I couldn't find out what, so what eventually happened to your client? Did, did he get off on the drug charges once you argued his case in French or was he eventually convicted? Well, I got to say that at the end of the day, there was a warrant issued for his arrest <laughs> because uh, he had not uh, been communicating uh, sufficiently with the court. So that's the irony. And I don't think anybody has asked me that question <laughs> since... Uh, since the case was argued. But the, all the constitutional issues were argued before the matter was to proceed to preliminary inquiry, yeah. because I had applied for a prohibition on the ability of uh, the court to hear a preliminary inquiry in English. And that prohibition order was granted at the Queen's bench level, then reversed at the Court of Appeal. And ultimately, the criminal code provisions permitting a trial in French in Alberta were proclaimed before I actually got to the Supreme Court of Canada on that particular issue. It's official black letter law that, Correct. that plaintiffs in Alberta and, and, and defendants can have a trial in French. 
Well, it, 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 there are different ways of doing it in Alberta. It's quite unusual. There's the language law, the language act essentially revoked that Northwest Territories provision that I referred to for matters within provincial jurisdiction, but retained the ability of people to argue orally before the court in French in civil matters. And of course, in, in criminal matters. So there's that one. Um, but the Northwest Territories provision, as I said, does continue to be maintained um, because it could not be revoked by provincial legislation. So it still applies as to federal matters that have a criminal character to them. And then we have, of course, the criminal code, which uh, provides for the uh, right to a trial by judge or judge and jury in French, which is well ensconced now. Wow. Now, so your other landmark case was wearing your hat as a constitutional lawyer. That had to do with the issue of French language education, which, as you said, had been one of your father's great passion projects. He fought for years in other ways. But tell me how you ended up fighting and winning the right to French schooling in Alberta. Well, I think it was the advent of the Charter of Rights and what the Charter of Rights opened up in terms of opportunities to um, assert constitutional language rights um, in courtrooms rather than in the boardrooms that my my father used to negotiate with government in, I guess, and the separate school board. In fact, their meetings were often in the basement of the local church. And there was a group of Francophones who would meet with the um, authorities and attempt to negotiate. I think it's fair to say he was concerned um, that when I initiated the lawsuits involving uh, French rights, because he wasn't used to that way of proceeding. But I got him on board. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then you got the court on board. So how did you, how did you establish that there was a right for French schooling in Alberta and for a French language school board? There were a number of cases across Canada, even at that time. And in fact, uh, there was a question asked of us whether Alberta provided the best fact scenario to argue for the management and control of school facilities within our province by the Francophone community, um, essentially the Francophone parents. And what we responded, Brent Gaughan, who was co-counsel, um, and I responded was, in fact, we have the best circumstances because of the uh, rate of erosion of the French language since the turn of the century in the province. And where that can be remedied most effectively, of course, is with children and in their schools. And so um, I think that's how the decision was made to proceed. And um, the Supreme Court of Canada provided some very important guidelines for uh, governments across the country in uh, the MIA decision. So, you know, we've talked about the fact that under the Northwest Territories Act, there were extensive French language rights. And Alberta was once a majority Francophone province, but we lost or buried so much of that history. How important do you think it is, that Francophone history, that Francophone culture, to Alberta's sense of identity? Well, I mean, it is one of the founding uh, groups of Alberta, as you've pointed out. And I think that it, it certainly has its place. And I believe what um, my questionnaire reflected in my work in other areas of the country, in BC, in the Northwest Territories as a judge, 
is that opening up the ability to continue one's official language uh, rights or to, to establish them and maintain them opens up the ability to assert more diversity within our country. And so you know that multiculturalism, of course, is guaranteed by the child charter. What does it mean? And so I think that asserting through uh, court decisions what uh, language rights mean and how they're important does open up opportunities for diversity, which um, is certainly a value. It's a value in our courts. We're attempting to have more judges of a diverse background appointed. I'm very happy to see that that has progressed in my own province. And in my yeah. in the court that I used to head, and uh, so it it I think it, it I think it's a very positive thing. Now speaking of diversity on the bench, you were just thirty eight years old when you were appointed to be a judge. That's pretty young. Plus, as you said, you had four kids at the time. Were you ever intimidated by that challenge of being a young woman on the bench um, on the court, court of Queen's bench as it was then? Well, I, you know, I'll tell you a little story. I was on my second or third day at age 38, trying to find the coffee room at the courthouse, found it. And there was a discussion among some of my new colleagues about my lack of experience, life experience. And um, I stopped and said, well, that's, it's an interesting comment. And I suppose that the only thing I can say about this is as my mother said before me, the proof is in the pudding. And that has been a little adage. I don't even really know what proof in the pudding means. No, it's it's just the, 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 the proof in the pudding is in the eating. That's so, right. So that it, when, you, when you eat the pudding, you find out if it was any good. So, Right. Okay. And, and I guess that's, that's a really nice explanation that you've provided. <laughs> and it certainly is enlightening because it was, as I said, repeated to me often in my childhood. But it, it, what I had um, uh, decided at age 38 was that um, they needed, the court needed women, the court needed someone who could express themselves in the other official language in Canada. So I felt quite comfortable joining the court for those reasons and um, worked very hard as well to make sure that what you say, the, the, the product that was being eaten was satisfactory. <laughs> so, this is, so this is a question I've always, I've always wondered about because, you know, you mentioned your husband, Peter. Peter Royal was, at the same time you were on the bench, one of uh, Edmonton and Alberta's leading criminal trial lawyers. I used to joke in my family that if I were ever arrested, especially if I were guilty, to please call <laughs> Peter Royal. So was it ever a challenge being a judge in the court, in the, you know, in the same court where your husband was taking on some really controversial and news generating trials? Well, I think it's not un that unusual that parties get married who, uh, you know, have, have the law in common and that they take different routes afterwards. But uh, uh, we simply erected the walls that we needed to in order to ensure that, for example, no member of Peter's firm appeared before me on anything of consequence. If it was to put a matter over, uh, that yeah. that was something. But if there was a contested adjournment, even that matter never hit my desk. 
And I also feel strongly that, you know, we we share a personal life together, but professionally, uh, we're very separate and that's how it should be. And that's how it should be in any relationship, that there be an independence there professionally. So, no, I don't think I worry too much about it. Okay, this is good to know. I mean, the law has occupied so much of your life. But as you mentioned, when you were a student, you worked as a reporter for Radio Canada. And later, I know you took part in amateur theater productions that the Edmonton lawyers and judges put on every year as a charity fundraiser. In fact, one of the, a director who worked with you told me that you were a natural comedian. He even compared you to Carol Burnett. <laughs> so... What impact do you think those experiences had on you, your work as a journalist and and your your work on the stage? Uh, What impact did they have on your work as a lawyer and a judge? Well, I I mean, firstly, as I have said at every bar admission ceremony that I presided, um, lawyers have a real opportunity to contribute to their community. They're very privileged in many ways with a, a great education and opportunities. And so giving back in the way that you're feeling comfortable with, I think, is key. And from my perspective, um, particularly when I became Chief Justice, communicating with one's community effectively uh, within an open court system and an independent court system is really important. And probably I learned those lessons when I was a journalist those four or so summers uh, during law school and my undergrad years. Uh, the theater is just that other side of me. Maybe it's part of being one of eight kids. You got to develop a sense of humor. And so I probably would not have been uh, attracted to drama more than comedy. And uh, again, it was a good cause. And it allowed me to interact with members of the bar, really on a very focusy level. And I thoroughly enjoyed the experience. I do know because I was a journalist, often covering the courts during your time as a judge and as chief justice. And I witnessed firsthand the work that you did to make the courthouse more accessible to journalists, to make the work of the court more understandable to journalists and to the public. I wanted to to press you a little bit harder on this. Why does that open court principle matter so much to you? Well, uh, I think Oliver Wendell Holmes, you know, way back when and about like, you know, um, uh, he was an American jurist, said law is nothing unless close behind it stands a warm living public opinion. I've always loved those words because uh, public trust in uh, our court system is not gained without effort. Um, we know that public trust can falter. And so it's very important that the courts uh, communicate with the public effectively. And um, we had we adopted a number of ways of doing it. But the, the piece that I perhaps am most proud of is hiring a former uh, journalist, very recently retired, seasoned court beat reporter to become our communications officer at the court. And when Tony Blair asked me what his job would entail, I quite frankly said, I really have no idea. I just know I know I need you, Tony. And so we developed a sort of a a game plan for Tony. And uh, he was a very valuable link to the press and uh, also started up our Twitter account, which was not without controversy at the time. Yeah. No, I mean, I I mean, Tony... Tony is a, a friend and former colleague, but it's certainly, and I will say at a time when newspapers were slashing their number of reporters, it was really helpful to an industry that was facing its own crisis that 
access for us was made a little bit smoother. And so I want to thank you personally for, for that. It, uh, it was very helpful. Well, thank you. And it, it shouldn't be something that, that one thanks the court for. It should be part of what we provide. Now, during your thing that wasn't like an American confirmation hearing, uh, one of my Senate colleagues did ask you a somewhat uh, pointed question about how you felt about being, as she put it, forced to move to Ottawa, which was not perhaps the way I would have put things. But you will, of course, now be living and working in Ottawa, a, a, a truly bilingual city where there's lots of French in the, you know, in, in the workplace and you know, on, on the streets. You've never lived outside El Britta for any length of time before. How are how are you and your husband preparing for this transition? Well, it's um, it's a work in progress. I have to say, I have uh, rented an apartment. I'm about to um, move into it this weekend. My husband will be joining me in a couple of weeks for a particular event at the court, and he will probably divide his time. Uh, between Ottawa and Edmonton, more so in Edmonton, his friends, his luncheon crowd, uh, (laughs) which is about three times a week are all here. And I think they'd be terribly disappointed if he wasn't able to uh, maintain his links in Edmonton. And so would he. So I think my life will be a bit like yours. It's a lot. It's a lot of back and forth. Right. But uh, uh, I have, I have one final question I have to ask because Christmas, Christmas is coming. And you're about to get your very own red and white fur Santa suit, the, <laughs> the formal dress robes of the Supreme Court of Canada, right. which do tend to make you all on the bench look like you escaped from a Santa Claus parade. Have you tried yours on yet? Well, I will not comment on your last observation, but I will say that a fitting is set for next week. And the ceremony, that is the public ceremony, uh, which will swear me in, uh, you know that I was sworn in privately, it will be sometime in the new year. Well, that is marvelous. And uh, I know you don't, you guys don't wear those suits all the time, but when you come, when you do come to the Senate for the throne speech, uh, they make you wear them. And so I, I will look forward to having the chance to see you one day on the floor of the Senate in your, in your full regalia. So... Thank you so much. I'll look forward to that event. And it's been just a pleasure to speak to you. Yeah, it's been absolutely delightful. Madam Justice Mary Moreau is the newest member of the Supreme Court of Canada. Thank you and merci for being part of this podcast. À la prochaine. Merci. À la prochaine. Oui, à bientôt. Alberta Unbound is produced and edited by Caitlin Cummings and written and presented by me, independent Alberta Senator Paula Simons. Last month, we hit a new milestone, 30,000 downloads of our podcast series. I am so happy and grateful that so many of you have been enjoying these conversations, and I hope you'll consider following, liking, and sharing our podcast and leaving a review. Wishing all of you the very best for a happy new year, and we will return in January with more conversations with more remarkable Albertans. Merci and hi hi.